You remember when your kids were young? When my kids were young, they couldn't wait for Christmas morning to find out what was going to be under the Christmas tree. You know, so they'd scurry around the house looking for things. They'd quiz their mom and dad regarding what they were getting for Christmas. So all week long, it's kind of felt like that around here, that every time any one of us saw any one of you, just wanted to know what happened last week on Commitment Sunday. You know, you just wanted to get down the nitty-gritty of all those numbers. So Pastor Ty's not here this week. Uh, we're still letting uh, commitment cards come in and first fruits come in, but I have a couple of authorized leaks. Can I do that? Just leak out a little bit of information to kind of tease you. So the largest first fruits offering ever given in South Shore's history is about three quarters of a million dollars. And it was given um, when we did a fundraising for this sanctuary to pay off its debt and to raise some funds for um, the planning for our next phase. Uh, last weekend, you gave over $2 million in first fruits gifts. Twice what we'd, almost three times what we'd been able to give previously. Um, another hint would be you gave last week more than twice what's ever been raised at South Shores for any building campaign. This is another great number. Uh, the other part of it that was uh, something for us to realize is, is that our goal was that everyone in our church family would uh, have the opportunity during the Inspired Journey to ask of the Lord, what would you like to do? What would you like me to do, Lord? What would be my part in this? And last week, over 300 giving units made commitments, both to our first fruits and to our three-year pledge, which is, again, more than we've ever received in terms of pledges before. But one of the things that indicates is there's about another... I don't know, a couple hundred at least giving units that still have the opportunity to participate. And so we just want to encourage you on the back of your bulletin, it talks about the idea that we'll be receiving commitment cards and first fruit gifts through the end of the year, uh, that we'll give you updates as regard to where we are total-wise, and we'll give you updates when the deacon board meets as to what their decision is in terms of going forward with the building plan. But this is a great day for South Shores. We had great news last week, and we are very much excited. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Exodus chapter 3. And what you think about the idea that there are so many fears that we have in our lives. If you watch the news and there are terrorist attacks in Paris, there are shootings in Colorado, there's global warming, there's drought, there's disease, and so much more. And you almost ask yourself, what is it in reality that I should fear in life? You know, am I going to fear a financial crisis? Am I going to fear uh, an unknown circumstance in my health? Am I going to fear death? But some of our fears and worries are actually a little misplaced. You know, we think of something that particularly fearful for us, like maybe if you're a surfer, your greatest fear is a shark attack. Uh, but Newsweek recently said that the likelihood of you experiencing a shark attack is only 28 Americans experienced a shark attack last year. Whereas, you know, that little mutt that kind of follows you around the house, there have been 4.5 million dog bites this last year. So you're much more likely to get bit by your dog than you are by a shark. Even Americans killed in terrorist attack worldwide averages about 35 a year, where Americans who die from seasonal flu is over, th over 35,000 a year. That you're more likely to experience uh, a identity theft than you are a burglary. There were only 2.2 burgl million burglaries last year, but over 8.3 million identity thefts. And, you know, every time a, an airline crashes anywhere around the world, we're thinking, I'm not getting on a plane for months. You know, I'll, I'll take the train, I'll drive, I'll walk. Well, maybe not walk, but you know what I mean. Well, there were only 30, 321 fatalities in airline accidents last year, or the year before, I'm sorry. Last year there was a big one. Then there, but you are more likely to what? Die, 34,000 of us die in America in automobile crashes. The vast majority of those which occur within five miles of our house. 
So sometimes our fears are a little misplaced. So recently I read a book, and I actually want you to write down in your notes. So grab your notes inside your bulletin. You've got your note sheet. Grab it and just kind of some corner, write the word with. It's the title of a book written by a gentleman named Sky, S-K-Y-E, just Thani, J-E-T-H-A-N-I. And Sky Jathani is an um, immigrant from India with his family who became a follower of Christ, went to Wheaton College, later went on to Trinity Seminary, and today he's the managing editor of Christianity Today. And he wrote this book called With, Reimagining the Way You Relate to God. And what he offers is an interesting idea about how we deal with fear in our lives through trying to exert some sort of control in our lives. You ever been in that place? Okay, I've got this fear, so I'll exert this control. And maybe I'm fearful of dying in a automobile crash, so I'll be extra cautious, you know, on the highway. Or, or maybe I'm afraid of choking on something, so I'll be extra cautious with the portions of food that I eat. But he says that, that really fear and control are the basis of all human religions in his book. Here's how he says it works. He says, we live in a dangerous world marked by chaos, sin, and scarcity. And these dangers cause real fear in our lives because we have little control over them. So we try to mitigate our fear, try to kind of balance out our fear through control, by seeking control in our lives. We even believe we can, in one sense, control God. And here's kind of how we do it. In fact, write in your notes these four phrases. Life under God, life over God, life from God, and life for God. And what Jasthani talks about in his book is each one of these are ways that we somehow try to seek control over God and over our lives. He says life under God seeks to control, God's bless, to control God by securing God's blessings through keeping all the rituals and morals of the Christian faith. As if if we did all those things, then we're guaranteed a blessing in our life and no chaos. And, and the thought is he offers, when are we going to learn that control in our lives is an illusion? that no one has that. The second one he offers is life over God, where we say, okay, this is how God works. These are the principles in God's world. This is the laws of the natural universe. I will live by those and expect them to be blessed. And yet chaos always enter into that. Catastrophic incidences occur that. Things that we cannot control or cannot even conceive in our future enter into that. He says others live with life from God, which seeks wealth and prosperity and health to insulate ourselves from all the calamities that are going on in our world around us. Again, the illusion that we could protect ourselves from things we have absolutely no control over, like financial crises or a life-threatening disease. And then he describes that some of us live in this place where we think of life for God, that we think if we do all the right things for God, it's kind of that mentality that maybe a college student will think, maybe if I, if I, after I leave college, if I go to, the, go to Africa and I, I serve in the mission field there, that God will bless me, because that's life for God, doing all the right things. But it's foolish to think that we can dictate God's blessings in our lives. And Jathani offers the idea that if you really look at each one of these ideas, life with, for God and life under God and life from God and life over God, none of them really do anything to alleviate the fears in our lives. They actually leave us dissatisfied with God. But in the midst of that, the Bible offers another alternative for us in terms of our relationship with God and how we would live it and how we would look at the world that we live in and how we would deal with fear and how we would deal with the issue of control. And during this Christmas series, we're going to do a teaching series called God with us. And God with us is the promise that God makes throughout the scriptures to his people, from Moses to Joshua, from Solomon to Haggai, from Genesis to Revelation, 
that his presence in our lives, that God with us is the antidote to all the fear and all the uncertainty and all the selfishness that we experience. And that it's the very coming in the Christmas season of the promised Emmanuel, God with us, that is the answer to our uncertainty and fears. And then we go clutching for this and grabbing for this and some sort of control and dealing with this sort of fear in that sort of way. And God says, none of that will work if you will simply just rest in the assurance of the promise of God's presence in your life, then you can walk forward amongst that chaos. See, there's no greater blessing that could be conceived than for God to dwell amongst his people. And as I said earlier, we see the presence of God with his people from Genesis to Revelation. And it's so beyond our imagination that the God of the universe would dwell amongst his people and be present with them that it took revelation for it to reveal it to us. Listen to God's word as it reveals some of this wonderful truth. I just kind of did a a little survey of these. And I started in Isaac, in in Genesis 26, where it says, And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said to Isaac, Don't go down to Egypt. Live here in the land where I have you. Stay here for a while, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. Or he said to Moses in Exodus 3, which we'll follow up on later, where it says, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said... I will be with you. Didn't give him a solution for it. Didn't say how he was going to do it. Didn't tell him how he was going to organize it. Just said, I will be with you. Or with Joshua in chapter 1 where he says, Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river Euphrates and all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. And no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. For as I was with Moses, so I will be with you also. I will never leave you or I will never forsake you. The theme is picked up in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1 when the angel comes to Joseph and says to Joseph, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by his prophet, that behold, a virgin would conceive and bear a son, and they would call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. John picks it up in his gospel in the first chapter, and he says, the word became flesh, and the word dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the Father full of grace and truth. And if that weren't enough, after Jesus' time on earth throughout the Gospels, when he's about ready to descend into heaven and to sit at the right hand of the Father, he says to his people, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Or earlier in Matthew 18, when he'd said to his disciples about the church, for where the two or three are gathered in my name, I am with them. I am amongst them. Even that great promise in Revelation 21 When you look upon that great city that's the glory of God, it says, And the city, it has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. The glory of God is present in the new Jerusalem, giving light to the city in his presence. Over 211 times in Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, God offers his people this promise, I am with you. I will be with you. And today we're going to look at how the presence of God turned the fear and the weakness and the inadequacy and the intimidation of Moses and Joshua into strength and into courage. So if you have your Bible with you, turn to Exodus chapter 3. Some of the verses will be on the screen, but some of what I'm reading I just want you to follow along in your text or, or, or just listen to. And Moses' call in his life was to free Israel. That was God's mission in his life. 
And, and as Moses responded to that, he's really responding to the fact that it had been 400 years since Jacob's family had relocated to Egypt when Joshua had brought them there during that great famine. And initially under Joshua, they had offered and uh, experienced great blessing there in Egypt and great favor with the Egyptians. But as the tribe of the Hebrews grew there in Egypt, they were a threat to the people of Egypt. And so the people of Egypt enslaved them and they used them in brutal ways, working them 24-7 on their monuments and their building projects. There were various times when they slaughtered their young, uh, which is the story of Moses and how he escaped that. And they beat them miserably. And, and they come to a place after 400 years of this that there's this place where God comes and he, and he offers them hope and he offers them, listen in chapter 3, it says, it says, at this time Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, a priest in Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a building, burning bush. And I think of this, if you're Moses, this is so implausible. And when you think of, here's Moses who had been born amongst the slavery class, had been rescued from his imminent death as his mom put him into a basket in the river, and then he'd been raised by the Egyptian elite class. And then in his youth, he learned that he truly was a Hebrew, and he experienced great conflict between these, these two classes. And one day he came upon two Hebrews being beaten unmercilessly by this uh, Egyptian slave master. And he killed the Egyptian slave master. And, and now he was an outcast amongst both people, um, hated by the Egyptians for this murder, uh, feared and kind of wondered about by the Hebrews because of where he'd been raised and, and what his background was. And in the midst of all that, Moses fled to Midian. And, and there he married a priest's daughter. And for 40 years, he was a shepherd of sheep. And whatever confidence, whatever boldness, whatever leadership abilities seemed to just have disappeared. And Moses was kind of a fearful and a timid man. And then God comes to him in this place and, and appears to him. And, and I don't know, you know, we get a little um, sarcastic sometimes or uh, about the idea of how every time an angel or the God appears that people seem to be afraid. And, and I want you just to grasp from that. Okay, God appears to you and speaks in a burning bush. How are you feeling? Oh, you're feeling kind of cool and relaxed. And, you know, you are, you're fearful. So when he says, do not be afraid, it's just not some kind of you know, moniker that angels say or God says when he appears to people. It was the way Moses felt. He's completely intimidated at this moment that he's standing before the God of the universe. And so he goes on to talk about, so the Lord said to him, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. And God said, don't come any closer in verse 5. Take off your sandals, for this is holy grand. And then he says to him, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And even at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then God goes on to tell him in verses 7 and 8 how he has seen the misery of the people, of his people, that while he seems to have been silent during these 400 years to the people, he's been present and he has observed what they are going through and the fear and anxiousness that is in their lives and that he has come to address it. But what Moses feels in this moment, what Moses is experiencing is inadequacy regarding the mission that God has given him. That when God appears to Moses, Moses is fearful. Moses uh, feels inadequate. He's saying, who am I, Lord, that you would use me to free the people from Egypt and to move them out of captivity? And, and God offers him this wonderful promise in the midst of this uh, thing, and, and, and God appears in his own initiative, and he, and he appears in this bush, and he, and he speaks out to Moses. And he says things like, I am the God of your fathers, 
evoking this covenant promise that not yet faded away in the life of Moses or the Hebrews. That this promise that had been given in Genesis 12, that God would bless them and he would multiply them and he would use them to bless the others and he would give them a promised land. And, and he'd measure out that promised land in terms of great size and great distance and great influence. And that rang in their ears, but it had been so long since they'd heard it. And here was God showing up again, present with his people, in the middle of nowhere, with someone who's a nobody. And really what he's identifying there is that God's faithfulness in the past offers reassurance in the present and the future. We experience that in our own lives, that when we come to a, a new crisis, a new fear, a new place where we feel out of control, one of the places to kind of ground ourselves is to say, you know what, the God who has worked in my life in the past, it was real. And, and I, I understood it as God's presence in my life and God's guidance. And who am I to think that he would abandon me now in this one and just kind of leave me dangling? Because that's not who he is. He desires to be present with his people. Well, Moses goes on in verse 11 to ask this question. It's one of five protests that he offers. It's a sense that Moses kind of beats on God here to say, really, me? I'm the one you want to use? In his inadequacy, he kind of says, God, me? And, and all these kinds of things. Well, the first one he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He's not really eager to be the self-styled deliverer in this moment. He's timid. He's unsure of himself. He shrinks back from the self-assertiveness that had been a part of his life when he saw himself as part of the elite class in Egypt. Moses had serious doubts about his qualifications. He had serious feelings of inadequacy in this moment. And in response to him, God offers this in verse 12. He says, and God said, I will be with you. And God said, this will be a sign for you that I have sent you that when you bring the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And even then, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? This is kind of his second query. Really, me? What should I tell them? You've got to give me something as an answer here, Lord. And in the text, it goes on to say, tell them that I am, that the God of their fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, is with them, that I am and God's response to Moses' alleged inadequacy was twofold. He promised that he would personally accompany him. It, it kind of expands the promise where he says, I have come down in this bush and I am with you. But he says, I will be with you. In fact, 14 times God promises to be with the patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob. And now he assures Moses that in the same way that he was present with them, he'll be present with him. And he gives him the assurance through this phrase, I am with you. I am with you. And the promise of God's presence provided Moses with great strength. Provided Moses with great strength. The promise of God's presence in any of our lives is supremely important when we feel inadequacy. When we feel inadequate for whatever task that we're a part of, whether it was your first day and you're at, at a new job, and you just felt grossly inadequate. Whether it was the first time you held your infant baby and you felt grossly inadequate. Whatever the circumstance it is in our lives, and yet sometimes in those moments of inadequacy, 
one of our first questions is because, as the Israelites might have asked, God, where were you for these 400 years that we're being trampled over by the Egyptians? Where, where were you when we cried out for deliverance? Where were you? And God in this text offers the idea that I saw your misery, and I knew of your misery, and in my timing I would come to you and deliver you from that. And we ask the question, God, are you really with us in this? God, are you really with me in this? I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but I think it's a very common feeling that we're kind of faithfully moving along in our Christian walk, wondering, is God really with us? And then, boom, something happens in your life, something that was an uncertainty, something that was unexpected, something that came down the, the pike in such a way that you never anticipated it. And you're left saying, okay, God, I'm in the midst of it. Are you present? And many of us would love to have, would you not, a burning bush where God speaks out, yes, I am with you. That's, that's the best voice I can do uh, there. And yet, for many of us, it's, it's more of a still silent voice in, in the quietness of our hearts when we pause and find some quietness in the midst of that chaos and we simply just ask God, are you with me? God, are you with me? And his promise is that he is. Ten years ago, I went through a very difficult job transition. I, I was over at Saddleback Church, and I'd been there for about six years, and the project that I was working on was kind of coming to an end, and I was thinking about doing something else there at Saddleback. And, and in the midst of that, I got an offer to work with a Christian organization as their vice president of strategic um, partnerships. It's kind of a great title. I had no idea what it meant. Uh, and so I left Saddleback in the first week of December, uh, the person that was hiring me said, you know what, take the rest of December off into January, and why don't we have you start February 1st? And, and Saddleback had given me some severance, so I was just in a great place, and I enjoyed the holidays tremendously. And, and then I got a phone call from the president of this organization, and he said, I'd like to meet with you tomorrow if I could. And I don't know, it sounded a little ominous, you know, you get the feeling of those kinds of moments where you go, what's this about? Uh, and he tells, proceeds to tell me a story, that the previous year, they had not met their financial goals for the year in their end-of-the-year giving, that their board of directors had met during the first week of January, and they had decided to rescind my job offer. I was pissed. I was angry at God. I was angry at them. You know, I went back and forth, angry at God, angry at them. And I'm thinking to myself, what a fool. I've left one job that I securely had for another job, and now I'm unemployed. You know, I'm not just in transition. Have you noticed that's kind of, I'm in a job transition. Have you heard that recently? I'm not in a job transition. I am unemployed. I have one in college. I have a mortgage to pay. I am not feeling really good. And I went through three long, miserable months. I, a guy pulled me over after the previous service and told me a similar story, but he got a job offer within a week. Three long, miserable months. Honestly, during those times, questioning myself and questioning the presence of God in my life. And many times just kneeling and just praying, Lord, where are you? What are you doing in this? I'm not feeling very adequate in the midst of this. But it's so amazing that throughout that, God was shaping me, he was molding me, he was preparing me, he was loving on me. And at the end of that journey was the invitation to join the South Shore staff. And I've been here for 10 years. You know, it's hard to imagine that somewhere in that, I would say, was I going to miss the will of God? Was God not present in my greatest need as I sought him? No, he's right there with us. But because we experience so much uncertainty in life, there's a fear in us that he's not with us. Recently, I read a poll from Gallup about well-being in our country. It, it was not promising. Listen to what it said. It said, Americans are smiling less and worrying more than a year ago. You experience that? Smiling less and worrying more than a year ago. 
that happiness is down and sadness is up, that we're getting less sleep, and I love this, and smoking more cigarettes, and depression is on the rise. And this um, psychologist wrote, and you know what, people want to attribute it to the chaos in our world or to um, the financial crisis that may be gone or to an uncertainty about health, their health. But here's what he said. The reason's uncertainty. Well, remember what we talked about earlier from Sky Jastani? That we try to alleviate our fears and mitigate those fears by control in our life, and yet control is an illusion? Well, uncertainty is the parallel to that. That we're going to live, we're going to have to live, learn to live, learn to cope with, learn to even thrive in an atmosphere and uncertainty. But when people don't know what's going to happen next, they don't know if they're going to have a job next week, they don't know what's ahead in their future, they feel stranded in an unhappy presence, in an unhappy present. And they're in a state of national gloom. And really what God is saying to us is, my people, you don't have to live that way. Because in the promise of Emmanuel, of God with us, you can have strength every day. That in the midst of your inadequacy, and he understands our inadequacy, you can feel strength before God. God takes all of Moses' feelings of inadequacy and through the assurance of his design presence, he strengthens Moses. So he's able to fulfill the mission that God has given him. The second one person we want to pick up this week is Joshua. And while Moses was called to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, Joshua is now called to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. Joshua is called to be the successor of Moses. If you turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 31, kind of put your finger on verses 7 and 8, and I'll kind of catch up with you there. For centuries, the people of Israel had anticipated this great land, this great promise from God, since Genesis 12. And at the close of the book of Deuteronomy, we had the experience where Moses has been leading the people out of Egypt. He's been leading them through these 40 years in the wilderness. He himself is not able to go into the promised land because of the sin that he committed. This entire generation has had to wander around in the wilderness until a new generation would come that would believe in God and trust in his presence and move in to the promised land. So Moses would not be the person to lead them. And Joshua would be. And in Deuteronomy 30, Moses offers this kind of dialogue with the people where he says, if God goes with you because of your obedience and because of your trust in him, you'll experience victory as you move into the promised land. But if you ignore God and you're not obedient to him, God will not go with you into the promised land and you will not experience victory. He assures them of his presence in the midst of their obedience. And then in chapter 31, the Israelites are given notice that Moses will not go with them that they will have a new leader, and that leader will be Joshua. And in verses 7 and 8, it comes to this point where it says, And then Moses summoned Joshua, and he said to them in the presence of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them, and you must divide it amongst them as an inheritance. And the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you, and he will never leave you or forsake you. A promise that's renewed in Hebrews on the cover of your, of your bulletins. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And Moses, or Joshua, this command from God and from Moses is repeated continuously almost in Joshua. And you wonder why. Why do they keep telling Joshua, be strong and courageous? Well, it's because Joshua feels just the opposite. Joshua experienced intimidation regarding the mission that God had given him. When Joshua heard that the mantle of leadership was going to be transferred from Moses, this great leader who delivered them from Egypt, 
to him, he felt intimidated. He felt unprepared for that. He needed courage and strength in that moment. He needed to be strong and courageous. He needed to be reminded to be strong and courageous. But what we need to see is, why did God tell him be strong and courageous? Did he just kind of tell him, muscle it up, you know, get to that place where you feel good about this situation, you know, just ignore all the inadequacies in your life or how you might feel intimidated or what an awesome leader Moses was. Just ignore all that and, you know, fight through it. Fight through that emotion. He says, no, this isn't a human thing that you're going to experience. He says, the only way you're going to feel strong and courageous is what? If you know that the God of the universe who walked with your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, walks with you. In Joshua 3, 7, it says it this way, And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of Israel, so they may know that as I am with you, I was also with Moses. He says, I'm going to tell them, I was with Moses, and now I am also with you. And I love the fact that if you think about it historically, what was the great miracle that God did kind of as that final test in Moses' life where he would trust God? Well, it was when they went down to the Red Sea and, and, and Pharaoh had begun to chase him, wanting, regretting his decision to let them go and wanting to bring them back into slavery. And so they had the soldiers at their back and they had the Red Sea in front of them and, and the dilemma was huge and, and, and Moses cried out for God to deliver them. And in that moment, God parted the Red Sea and it says the Israelites crossed on dry ground and then the sea flooded and drowned all the Egyptians. And so, so that Joshua might know that God is present with him, what miracle does God do when Joshua marches down with the Ark of the Covenant and with the priests down to the Jordan River, which is no timid river. It's not a puddle. It's a major river. And in that moment where they dip their feet into it, that the Jordan River would part. And it says that the people of Israel would cross on dry land. And I love the picture at the end of their time when everybody has crossed. God says, take one leader from each tribe and go back into the riverbed and, and pick up a river stone. And they carried it to the side and they made a monument there. And, and then people asked, well, why did we build the monument here? And, and the question was, is, well, whenever people asked, what are these stones here for? They'd reminded of the work of God and how he was present with his people in this great moment and how through Joshua, who had succeeded Moses, he brought this great victory. And the promise of God's presence provided Joshua with great courage, even though he felt great intimidation. And the conditions of the promise were really this. He said, no one, God said, can stand against you as you walk with me and as I am present with you. And at one point later, when they were conquering the tribes, God had given them command that when they conquered a tribe, they were not to take any plunder from the tribe. They were to destroy everything because that plunder and those people were tainted as, as worshipers of a foreign god. And, and, and one leader decided not to do that in a place called Ai. And as a result, that leader and all of his family had to die so that the nation of Israel would be purified again and that presence of God could be with them as they went on to conquer in the promised land. And so there's this great promise of really that if God is not with us, we will not experience strength and courage. But if God is with us, we will experience strength and courage in those moments where we feel inadequacy and intimidation. I like to think of it in terms of this question. How big is your God? What does it mean to have God present with you in your life as you walk through the circumstances of your life? Do you kind of have a wimpy God who takes care of little things in your life? 
but not really the big things. Maybe you kind of have a medium-sized God who you trust in this, but the really big things you jump in and try to take control over. Or do you have this really big God that walks with you in every circumstance and every moment and you turn to for trust? John Ortberg, one of my favorite authors, writes of a situation years ago when a couple of members of the staff that he was a part of a church of in the La Mirada area came down to Newport and they're kind of walking around the Newport Pier, and there's a bunch of restaurants and bars in that area, if you've kind of ever walked down there, and it was a Saturday night. And, and he noticed that inside this one bar, a fight had broken out. And, and the fight had kind of spilled out into the street. And these three guys are just pounding on this one guy. And he and his friends are kind of looking at each other and thinking, what are we going to do? And we should do something. And these guys are pummeling this guy. And he kind of walks over and he says, stop that. And nothing happens. I mean, there's no change. These guys just continue to plumble it. So he just kind of raises his voice a little louder. He says, stop that. And, and nothing changes. They just continue to pummel this guy. And he's thinking, these guys aren't intimidated by me at all or my friends. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the fight stops. And the three guys that are pummeling on this guy just kind of shrink back. And the guys have no idea why this has happened until their eyes kind of follow over their shoulders what the other guys are looking at. And behind them is the bouncer who's just come out of the bar. And they don't know his name, but they're going to call him Bubba. Because Bubba's at least 6'3", and he's about 300 pounds, and it's not fat. And Bubba is chiseled. And Bubba has said, just through his look, knock it off, guys. And these guys shrink back. And then Ortberg writes, he says, cool. Wouldn't it be cool to think about going through life with Bubba right behind you? Like in every circumstance you walk into, people just shrink back in fear of you because you got Bubba with you. And then he kind of goes, well, that's stupid. I don't have a Bubba with me. I had a Bubba with me in that circumstance, but I'm not going to have a Bubba with me through life. And then he says, you know what I do if I have a big picture of God? I do if I have a big picture of God. I have someone who's always there with me. I have someone whose presence is able to help me not to fear. I have a great big God who's called me to do something in my life, who's called me to a mission that I feel inadequate for and intimidated by. But because he's with me, I can have strength and courage in that moment. Well, just as Moses was called to deliver the people of Israel and Joshua was called to lead them, the scriptures tell us that Jesus came and he was called to save us. In Matthew chapter 1, the scriptures tell us this. And Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to make, make Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived her is from the Holy Spirit. And you will give birth to a son, or she will give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place, the scriptures tell us, to fulfill what God had spoken through the prophet. For behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And what we learn here is this, the promise that had been made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Moses and to Joshua that had been made 211 times throughout the Old and New Testament. God renews in this moment when he says that in Jesus, God is present with his people, that God is with us. It's kind of unique because throughout the scriptures, Jesus, you know, throughout the gospels, particularly during his time on earth, he's never called Emmanuel. He's always called Jesus. And some have speculated that really Emmanuel was a title given for him, God with us, and that Jesus was his name, God saves. But in the advent of Jesus, Christianity is set apart from all other religions. 
Because we have the very presence of God dwelling amongst us, God incarnate, the Son of God who came to dwell amongst us. Rather than looking at God purely from a human perspective and hoping that he will alleviate our fears and help us to kind of mitigate the chaos that's in our lives and and give us some measure of control over the way that we live our lives, Jesus comes into our lives and says, I am with you. I am present with you. And I will be with you forever. And as he does so, it's that renewal of that promise in John 1.14 where it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You see where, where Dathani talks about all those other forms of religion, life for God, life under God, life over God, you know, that life uh, for God, this idea that, that Jesus, you know, and Jesus is unique in that because Jesus didn't come to help us live a list of rituals. He didn't come to help us implement useful principles or natural laws in our life. He didn't come to grant us all of our desires. He did not come even to give us a task to accomplish, though Jesus does do some of all these things. No, Jesus came to be what? To be with us. And Jasani offers, and I love the idea, that the solution for us and all of our fears and all of this illusion of control is to live a life with God. Not a life under God, not a life for God, not a life from God, not a life over God, a life with God, where God is to be treasured, where our life and all of our experiences are lived in light of our relationship with God, where the indwelling presence of God comes through His Holy Spirit in our lives, indwelling us and helping us with our fears and guiding us, where the cross is central to the idea of how we live our lives because it's the admission of I can't be perfect, that there was only one who could be perfect, and he died on the cross for our sins, and because he did that and reconciled man to God, I now can live as I am with an adequacy and an intimidation, but I can have strength and courage because I know that God is present with me. The focus of life with God is experiencing God, treasuring God, enjoying God. Yeah, sure, there'll be a time for us to do things for God. There'll be a time for us to understand what it means to walk with God in our lives. But the biggest part of it is simply life with God. And here's my prayer for all of us during this Christmas season, that we'll choose life with God during this Christmas season, that we'll choose life with God. Would you join me in prayer? Maybe there are some here this morning in this place who have never chosen life with God. My encouragement to you would be to do so right now. What you need to do first is simply just admit you're a sinner, that your sin separates you from God, just as it separates each one of us from God. And second, believe in Christ. Believe that Christ died on the cross, a substitutionary death for your sins, for my sins, for all of our sins, and that through him we can be reconciled to God. And then finally, choose life with God, following his path, seeking his will for your life. You can pray a prayer just like this. God, I know that I'm a sinner, and I admit my sin today. I know that Christ died on the cross for me. I believe that his death reconciles me to you. Today, I choose life with you, God. If you've prayed that prayer, I'd encourage you to maybe tell the person that you came with today. Maybe share it with one of our staff or one of our leaders. Even come back to me uh, in the foyer after the service. But you've embarked on a journey that's different than any other journey because you have chosen life with God. 
Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that in the midst of all of our fears, in the midst of all of our inadequacies, in the midst of all of our anxiety and worry, that you are present with us. That just as you made that promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to Joshua, through Jesus to his church and to his people as it extends to us today, that you dwell amongst us. That you promise never to leave us or forsake us. And that in your presence you offer us strength and courage to live the life that we're designed to live with you. Help us to choose you. Help us to choose life with you each and every day. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.